From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. The pandemic, like many crises, has provided us with an opportunity to re-examine some long-standing challenges in a new light. In the Valley, one of those long-standing challenges is closing the economic divide in a way that both raises the economic well-being of workers while also helping local businesses, especially small businesses, remain competitive. Are there solutions that can accomplish both? We'll hear from two statewide leaders in the for-profit and non-profit worlds to hear their ideas on how we can build a more competitive and more inclusive Valley economy. That conversation in a moment. Funding for the Maddie Report is made possible by grants from the California Emerging Technology Fund, leaders in the quest for digital equity, the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Fresno State Associated Students, Inc. Students serving students. BNSF Railway, moving our economy for 160 years. And the wonderful company. The Maddie Report is also made possible thanks to contributions from Harris Ranch Inn and Restaurant and E&J Gallo Winery. As well as the Bonner Family Foundation, Community Medical Centers, Dewey Square Group, Comcast Financial Agency, Nossiman LLP, Sagasser Watkins & Wheeland, and Valley Children's Hospital. From the Maddie Institute, the Public Policy Institute for the Valley's four public universities, this is the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. In March 2020, the government ordered businesses closed in response to the COVID-19 pandemic that left millions of Californians unemployed and in critical need of unemployment compensation for, to pay for essential things such as food and housing. That led to an historically high number of claims with the state's Employment Development Department, EDD, the agency that administers the state's unemployment compensation system. Recently, the state auditor uh, took a look at the state response to the claim surge and found it more than a little lacking. Our guest is Elaine Howe, California State Auditor. Welcome back to the Matty Report. Pleasure to be here, good to see you. So um, let's get right into it. You state in your report that quote, Significant weaknesses in EDD's claims processing and workload management leave it at risk of a continuing backlog of claims, unquote. Can you explain? Sure. Um, as you know, and I'm sure many of your viewers know, we've audited EDD in the past, and we ED has consistently struggled historically to process unemployment claims timely. Uh, typically, they're expected to get uh, benefits out within at least 14 days, or maybe a 21-day window. But what we saw when we audited them this last year is they hadn't heeded some of the suggestions that we made years ago, 10 years ago, to come up with a recession plan to make sure that they had a plan in place to be able to deal with the next recession. Certainly, the pandemic is unprecedented, but they have really struggled in processing claims, getting benefits out to unemployed Californians. They also are really struggling with their call center. People are having difficulty getting through the call center to even talk to a person to try yeah. to get help. You know, you also report that, quote, because EDD responded to the claim surge by suspending certain eligibility requirements, many Californians are at risk of the need to repay the benefits, uh, unquote. What actions did the EDD take that caused these problems? 
Right. EDD did two key things. First, they suspended the eligibility determination. So typically when you file an unemployment uh, claim, uh, EDD will go through a process to determine whether you're eligible for unemployment. Have you earned enough wages in the past uh, to be eligible for unemployment? They waive those requirements. So there are millions of claimants out there who didn't have to uh, submit the materials or they submitted the materials and EDD just didn't check their eligibility and went ahead and approved benefits. Now, as the federal government became aware of this last fall, the uh, U.S. Department of Labor said, EDD, you can't do that. You can't just suspend eligibility. You have to determine whether people are eligible. Now EDD has to go back and it's about 2.4 million claimants that we identified uh, as where their eligibility determination had been suspended. So some of those individuals may be deemed ineligible for the benefits they received, and now EDD may ask them to pay the money back. Oh, boy. And apparently some of these people probably were trying to call, use the call center. And as you indicated, there were some problems with the call center. Right. There were significant problems. They've historically had problems with the call center. Uh, in the past, when we've audited them, you know, maybe 15, 20 percent of people are able to get through to a human being and, and talk to someone to get their questions answered. During the pandemic and during the huge surge of unemployment claims, huge surge of calls into the call center, it went down to less than one percent. And then even after the governor uh, strike team went in, they added about, you know, three or 4,000 additional people to help with the call center. This The performance was still really poor uh, because you had tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of calls coming in and the call center, the folks just could not handle that volume. Yeah, it, it's, it sounds like though from your report that EDD's been here before. I mean, during the great recession of 2008, 2009, didn't they experience many of the same problems yet nothing? Right, and, and exactly. Uh, we, we issued a report in March of 2011, and we identified processing problems, process, problems with their claims processing system, problems with their call center. And so what we suggested back in 2011 is, you know, we just came out of a recession or we're exiting a recession. Recessions typically occur every five or six years. You've got to have a recession plan in place. You've got to update some of your automation as far as being able to automate claims. They were handling a lot of claims manually, and it just takes too long to do that. So what are your, some of your recommendations? Uh, some of our recommendations, similar to what we made in the past, but we have specific timelines on the recommendations this time. We're suggesting to EDD that you've got to figure out what elements of your process you can continue to automate. Now, one thing they did that has been very positive is they implemented ID Meet, which is an automated electronic way of verifying someone's identity. Uh, so that has really helped with their ability to process claims. But again, they still have that other workload that they suspended uh, eligibility determinations months ago. So they're going to have to go back and figure out how they're going to handle all of the different workload that they have. They have these suspended eligibility claims. They have more people filing for unemployment. They have a backlog of claims. So there's a lot that, that EDD needs to do. You know, it's it's unfortunately, in addition to EDD's poor performance in, in uh, making valid claims, not getting valid claims paid, Apparently, they've also had a, a staggering number of potentially fraudulent claims being paid. Um, so we're going to have that conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Since the surge in pandemic-related California unemployment claims, there have been many reported cases of potential and actual fraud. We're talking with California State Auditor Elaine Howe about a blockbuster report her office issued about the mismanagement of the state's unemployment compensation system 
that could cost the states billions of dollars. So in your report, you state that, quote, EDD's fraud prevention approach during the pandemic uh, was marked by significant missteps and inaction, unquote. Can you explain? Sure. Uh, there were a couple of key issues that we identified as far as inaction. I mean, obviously the pandemic hit us in February and March and everything started closing down in March and there was a huge surge and unfortunately people in California unemployed. So a huge surge in claims coming into EDD. Well, it wasn't until July that they put a, a control in place where uh, it would kick out certain suspicious claims, someone whose identity they weren't able to determine. Again, we talked about eligibility determinations being suspended, but once they put that control back in place, there were a lot of claims now that were starting to get kicked out, but they had already paid out a bunch of benefits. The second issue that they did not do is uh, suspicious addresses. As we've seen in the news, there have been numerous situations where 10, 20, 30 envelopes going to an address uh, where no one at that address filed for unemployment. Uh, EDD didn't put any control in place related to that until September. But when we conducted audit work, we found in December they were still paying out claims to some of these suspicious addresses. So they failed to put the proper controls in place. And unfortunately, that equates to fraudulent payments going out. Yeah, you, you also note in your report that, quote, EDD's lack of preparation left it unable to effectively address two high-profile high situations, unquote. What preparation should have occurred? And can you tell us a little about those two high-profile situations? Sure. One of the high-profile situations is the frozen accounts, as as I'm sure your, your viewers are aware that Bank of America puts out benefit cards for unemployment uh, claimants. That's how they get their benefits. They receive a card. Well, there were some suspicious claims uh, that Bank of America brought to EDD's attention. EDD told them to freeze the accounts. EDD did not have a plan to determine of the 344,000 accounts that it told B of A to freeze, how many of those potentially, what would the plan be to review those claims to determine are there legitimate claimants in there and let's release, let's unfreeze those accounts. So they didn't have a plan in place to address how they were going to work with the B of A and some unfortunately legitimate claimants got caught up in that. The second issue is cross-matching against incarceration data. Uh, similarly to uh, what the DAs have talked about is uh, once EDD put a cross-matching in place where they're matching a claim against an individual who's incarcerated either at a local jail or either in another state or at a state correctional institution, they found $810 million of payments for benefits associated with someone who is incarcerated. So that was another significant problem that we had in California. That just seems to add insult to injury, right? You got people that are incarcerated that are actually doing the fraud while in jail. Um, it's just... Yeah, pretty amazing. Anyway, your report also states that, quote, EDD had, uh, has relied on uninformed and disjointed techniques to prevent impost, um, imposter fraud. Um, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Right. And some of the situations where the cross-matching uh, occurred and the suspicious addresses where there are multiple envelopes going to an address, well, some of those individuals, unfortunately, probably had their identity stolen. Uh, we identified about 70,000 complaints coming into EDD. In the, in the last nine months of 2020. Typically in an entire calendar year, EED gets about 6,000 complaints of identity theft. Where we're saying there's a fragmented process, EDD has a variety of different units within the department 
that some identify potential fraud, but they have to notify another unit to stop payment on that claim. There is not a unified coordinated approach within the department to make sure that if one unit is identifying suspicious claims, another unit is well aware that we need to suspend those payments, stop paying on those particular benefits. It's very, very convoluted and disjointed, and they need to have a structured approach to fraud prevention and detection. So what are some of your recommendations to uh, come overcome, address some of these shortcomings? Well, first recommendation related to cross-matching. I mean, they do have a contract in place now, but what we recommended to the legislature is to require EDD to have a standard process for cross-matching, regardless of, you know, someday, hopefully, we're going to get out of this pandemic. But of course, we're going to run into recessions in the future, and there will be surges of claims. EDD should consistently, regardless of the environment, uh, be cross-matching against incarceration data. They should be reporting that information to the legislature and to the public. Um, in addition, uh, any benefits that they're working with EDD, they've got to come up with a comprehensive list. How many accounts have been frozen? How many remain frozen? How are we going to approach unfreezing those accounts and getting those benefits out to the legitimate claimants? Um, and then the last key, key recommendation, we have a variety of recommendations, is they need to strengthen their fraud prevention and detection efforts. And that starts with having one group within EDD that's responsible for all of the coordination among the various units. So just a, this a, a snapshot of a few of the recommendations. We have several in, in the two reports we issued. Right. Well, I want to thank the State Auditor Lane Halford for joining us. Up next, did Trump's White House fail to prepare California for the massive unemployment fraud that it's experiencing? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Because federal money helps pay for the state's unemployment compensation program, Washington can have a strong role in how the system works. State officials are saying that the Trump administration is partly to blame for the widespread fraud that has shaken the state's unemployment compensation system. Who's really to blame? Our guest is David Lightman, a national political correspondent for McClatchy Newspapers. He's joining us from Washington, D.C., and he's done a fact check on the issue. He's here to tell us the answer. Welcome to the Maddie Report. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So California Labor Secretary Julie Su has maintained that the Trump administration, quote, did not provide adequate guidance or information to protect against fraudulent uh, rings uh, state by state, unquote. On the other hand, California State Auditor Elaine Howe, uh, who we just spoke with, has said that uh, the Federal Labor Department, quote, advised states about how to determine whether an individual was able and available for work in light of the pandemic, unquote. So who's to blame? The issue is involves the pandemic unemployment assistance money. That's the federal program that covers self-employed people, gig workers, and so forth. That began on March or was approved on March 27th. Roughly six weeks later, the federal government sent out a detailed memo advisory to state agencies, such as the California Employment uh, Development Department, which manages the unemployment insurance program. It warned about potential fraud. It warned about potential problems. Did it specify that there could be organized criminal rings operating internationally? No, but it did warn. So the auditor here is correct. Months later, it continued to issue advisories. Now, did it warn about the scope of the fraud? No. Uh, should it have? I'll leave that to you know the political debate. Um, so in that sense, uh, Sue was correct in that nobody warned them of the scope of this. Uh, but to say that 
somehow the Trump administration dropped the ball. That's a tougher one. Yeah, I'm just you know, wondering, though, given the, the scale of, of what's going on here, how did these the billions of dollars we're talking about? How did the, the states not see this program was going to be a prime target for fraud? Yeah, especially when, uh, again, the auditors said they weren't really checking eligibility that carefully. Uh, they wanted to get the money out the door because, after all, we were in the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. Uh, but again, nobody saw the scope of this. Nobody saw the tens of billions of dollars. Um, it wasn't until really early summer, I believe, that uh, federal officials, state officials started to notice, hey, something's really going awry here. You know, it's 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 interesting, too. I think one of the things that, that I saw in your fact check was you, you noted that uh, technology was a problem here, that a lot of these state systems, California, maybe a prime example, they're a little behind the curve when it comes to technology uh, and using technology to make sure you have an efficient and effective unemployment compensation system. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and in fact, we went back, uh, my colleague Wes Venteicher and I went back years and years. Uh, you, go, you can look at audits and they're all online back to 2011, 2009 that said, you got to beef up this technology system. You're not ready for the next recession. And somehow it, they kept sort of, I don't want to say fumbling, but it never quite got up to where it was. The other issue involves cross-checking uh, claims against Social Security numbers. California was one of 15 states that didn't do that. And that hurt as well. So it never quite, it never quite gelled, according to the auditor. So, you know, okay, now they're aware of the problem. Um, and I'm just wondering, have USDOL, U.S. Department of Labor, and the California EDD fixed the problem? So they've eliminated, have they eliminated the fraud and made sure that legitimate claims are being paid? We just, well, we don't know if they've eliminated the fraud, but certainly they've taken strong steps to do so. The new director, Rita Sines, has is following the auditor's recommendations. The auditor still had some uh, comments about uh, the pace of this, but it appears they're on track. Uh, they've been briefing us, they being EDD, every two weeks, kept us up to date. Uh, we'll just have to see. Yeah, well, well, hopefully, given the scope of the problem, hopefully they have. I want to thank our guest, David Lightman, from McClatchy Newspapers for joining us. Up next, we're going to talk about the political fallout. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. So what's the political fallout at the state capitol with the EDD scandal? Um, let's ask two of the most knowledgeable observers of state politics that we know. John Myers, the Sacramento Bureau Chief for the LA Times, and Dan Walters, the well-read columnist for Cal Matters. Uh, welcome back to the Matter Report, guys. Thank you. So, uh, so Dan, let me ask you, um, the uh, problems that have been coming up with EDD, you know, late claims, massive fraud, uh, is obviously going to have some impact on Governor Newsom. I'm just wondering, is it going to have a big impact in this possible recall or in the 2022 uh, re-election, or is really how he handles the COVID pandemic generally and school reopening specifically going to be more important? Well, I think EDD takes place along with several other uh, pandemic-related issues, the general management of the thing in terms of opening and closing businesses and that sort of thing, uh, the vaccine, opening schools. Nobody knows when they're going to reopen, and, and the parents that they're anxious to have their kids go back to school, uh, some of them are quite angry, and it could play into the uh, recall movement as well. So it's a combination of things all related to the pandemic, of which EDD certainly is one, since it directly affects millions of Californians and indirectly even tens of millions, perhaps. 
Yeah, I, I want to ask John, you know, uh, Dan wrote an, an article recently, uh, Colin, we referred to it as a uh, bureaucratic Chernobyl. I thought, was, I thought that was kind of an interesting phraseology. Um, so, so John, let me ask you, um, what, do you what do you see in terms of the uh, this EDD problem? Is it going to be a big problem for him? Is it really kind of a minor problem? It's really going to be how he handles the pandemic. It's really going to affect either the recall or uh, the 2022 election. It's all of the above, Mark. I mean, it's it's a big soup, I would call it, of things that the governor has to, to deal with. I mean, EDD is kind of an interesting story. We could spend a long time talking about that because there's a systematic problem at EDD. It's a, it's a computer system that is archaic. It's um, the, the bureaucracy elements that Dan had talked about, and it's not the only state agency like that. And the things that the Newsom administration did to try to speed those checks up, like um, you know, saying we don't have to do all the uh, the background information on these people came back and bit them in the backside, of course, because we had the fraud issues there. But I think getting out of that is going to be a challenge. And also the investigation about the fraud is going to be the gift that keeps on giving to Newsom's opponents. And then, yes, vaccination rollout, how he manages that, what happens on schools, uh, all of this combined is a is a big toxic soup, I think, for Team Gavin Newsom, and and it's going to be an interesting few weeks to see how they uh, how they handle this, and then of course into the into the spring and summer uh, remains to be seen. Well, John, you know this is going to be you know they're talking about it's an eleven billion dollar scandal, um, you know, with these fraudulent claims. Do you get the sense though that this is going to be this is going to have legs, or is this going to be just another example of you know mismanagement? And it's going to be forgotten. Uh, by the by, the collective you know public. I don't think it's forgotten, and I think for part of the reason that I said just a moment ago too, kind of to, to find point on it, Mark. The investigation of the fraud, the uh, frustration with the fraud, the demands from some Republicans in Washington and around the state that uh, California is going to have to repay that money somehow, uh, because of course there's this combination of from the federal government sometimes when you need them in the unemployment insurance fund. This is a drip, drip, drip. We see this in politics all the time. This is going to be a tough one. And I think, you know, the governor has got to um, he's got new leadership at the EDD. He's going to have to pick a new leader of the state labor and workforce agency because Julie Sue, his secretary, has now been appointed to a job in the Biden administration. This is going to keep playing out and it's going to be playing out at the same time as all those other issues. So I think it has legs in the sense that people are going to find out more about what has really been going on at EDD. And the longer that goes, I think the tougher it's going to be for the governor. So, Dan, we've got about 30 seconds left in the segment. Drip, drip, drip. Yeah, I'm going to keep on going. Even under the best of circumstances, millions of Californians are going to be dependent on these EDD payments. And they, they as they become more and more frustrated with the backlog of claims and everything, this thing is going to roll on for months, uh, easily months. Uh, this is a very big thing, and it's very, very important to the people who are supposed to be getting these payments and their families. So stay tuned. Um, I guess we're going to hear on this topic. I want to thank our guests, California State Auditor Elaine Howe, Dave Lightman with McClatchy Newspapers, Dan Walters with Cal Matters, and John Myers with the LA Times. Are state and local governments doing enough to help businesses remain competitive and ensure that economic opportunities exist for all workers? Can we create a more inclusive and competitive economy in a post-pandemic world? Some big questions, but not too big for our guest. He is Lenny Mendoza, the former head of California GoBiz, the governor, governor's Office of Economic and Business Development, and a chief economic and business advisor to the governor. Welcome back to the Matty Report. It's nice to see you. Nice to be here. So listen, it's an often repeated refrain that uh, the states 
costs are too high, uh, that we have numerous regulations, and that's pushing businesses and residents out of California. Do you think the talk, let's talk about California, I'll put Exodus in quotes, um, is overblown or is there some validity to these uh, complaints? So the short answer is it's definitely overblown, um, but there are issues that the state and our economy need to address. Um, you know, if the New York Times had been founded a year earlier when California became a state instead of when it was, they would have had a breathless headline that gold miners flee a new state, the gold rush is over. Every time we go through this part of a cycle, the media, particularly uh, East Coast media, declare that California is over. It happened post-World War II when there was a large influx of people moving to California to help build the Pacific Fleet. It happened after the uh, decline of the defense industry and the collapse of the savings and loan industry in the late 80s. It happened in 2000, 2001 with the internet bubble and the end of Y2K. And it happened in 2008 after the Great Recession. So this is this is this is not new news. This okay. is not new. Okay. Well, let me it's, ask. Let me ask you this. You know, another argument that's being made is that they say that you know California's reliance on on taxing the very rich is driving entrepreneurs away. Um, Steve Wesley, former state controller, had this proposal recently where he said that maybe we should take this opportunity to maybe to make the tax system uh, spread the burden a little bit more evenly. Maybe tax you know what they call sin taxes, right? So polluters, um, you know, sugary drinks, that kind of thing. Should, would a post-pandemic um, California economy benefit from some changes in the tax structure? So Californians have periodically explored whether there's an opportunity to change the tax structure. It just happens that in this economic cycle, which is, a, is very unusual in the sense that it was caused by the virus, not a normal cyclical downturn, we've actually had the businesses, many businesses and wealthy individuals in the state do quite well. And so normally you'd see a deep dip in state revenues, but now because of that progressive tax structure, the state's actually running a surplus this year. Uh, the issues with that have to do, normally it's much more volatile. And so the challenge of how you deal with that is either what the state has done for a decade now, build a substantial rainy day fund to be able to take off some of those peaks and spread them over the longer cycle when you have downturns and or tax more broadly so that you, whether it's uh, the syntaxes are small and won't make up the difference. Uh, if you're really going to do it, it's either going to at scale, it's either going to have to be services taxes of some sort, which are very complicated. Are you going to tax healthcare, for example? Or it's uh, issues around a broadening of the real estate tax base, which again, was on the ballot this last year and voters turned it down. So, you know, in concept, I'd like to have a, a different tax structure that's uh, smoother and less volatile with the economy. In practice, it's extraordinarily difficult to do politically. Right. And that's, there's a reason why they refer to it as the third rail of politics, right? right. Um, let me ask you this one last question. We've only got about a minute left in the segment. I want to ask you about um, what do you think California needs to be competitive nationally and internationally in a post-pandemic world? So the issue around California's competitiveness has to do with how attractive is it a place to live, start, and grow businesses. And so California has been an innovation economy for a very long time, and ensuring that it's still a place, particularly in a world of remote work, that that is true. 
And so California needs to retain its edge in ensuring that gets a disproportionate share of venture capital. It needs to ensure that is a place where a disproportionate share of companies that are going to go public are from California. That is true today. At least as of the last time I checked, there are something like 230 companies that have not yet gone public that are in the process, uh, venture-backed companies, of over a billion dollars in market cap. 132 of those are in California, 132 out of 230. Wow. Five are in Texas. So, you know, California has a innovation economy and that's where the future has to be. So, so some things aren't bigger in Texas. Okay, yeah. we'll come back. Um, we're gonna talk about a post-pandemic economy and what the government can do to help those most impacted by the changing economic landscape. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back, I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Lenny Mendoza, the Chief Economic Advisor to Governor Newsom. You know, uh, Californians with lower educational attainment and income seem to have been the most hurt economically by the pandemic. Um, what is the chance they're gonna see their jobs permanently replaced uh, by technology or they're gonna be seeing jobs in this new kind of gig-based economy? Um, it seems like those trends have kind of only accelerated with the pandemic. No, they they have. This is, uh, as many have called it, a K-shaped recovery where the top of the the economic strata are doing pretty well. And if, if uh, you're in technology-oriented business, you're doing very well. And many essential workers, and particularly those in California in the hospitality and travel and tourism-related and local retail businesses have really struggled, in-person service businesses. Uh, some of those will come back. Uh, as part of the natural economic recovery, there were 500,000 jobs lost in travel and tourism alone. California is still a very attractive place for people to come to visit, and the, many of those will come back. Others are going to be challenged through uh, increased remote work, through automation, through increasing consumer comfort with purchasing online. And so it's going to be a big challenge to ensure that the recovery is one that not only makes up what was lost, but helps ensure that we have an economy that works even better. Yeah, and we start thinking about, you know, the workers that are being most impacted. It seems like, I'm just wondering what you think about whether the COVID pandemic has not so much changed what needs to be addressed, but really clarify those needs that have just long existed. No, I, th I think it has, for the most part, clarified and accelerated trends that were already underway. When we were launching the Future of Work Commission a little over a year ago, uh, before the pandemic, we were talking about the sorts of trends that we thought would take a decade to play out. And in many cases, they played out in months rather than years. And so the acceleration of those trends where if you happen to have the right skills, educational background, right geographies, and unfortunately, in many cases, the right demography, uh, you're doing okay. And if you're not, it's challenging and it's not getting easier. So um, you're right. It did, in fact, accelerate many things that were already underway. You know, I'm wondering, do you see this more as, a, as an opportunity gap or a skills gap? So I think it is it is both, but it is fundamentally, and at this point in the cycle, an opportunity gap. We are just short of jobs. Um, there's nothing we can do short of beating the, vac the virus that is going to allow travel and tourism and hospitality to come back. So until that happens, we're opportunity constrained. Subsequent to that, and more longer term, we are going to have to have a substantial reskilling of not only those in the education system, but many adults to make sure that they've got the requisite backgrounds, experience, capabilities to meet where the jobs are going to be, not just where they have been in the past. Yeah, it, it, 
it seems that and you know that that's true. There are some areas where you're going to see growth, you know, in, in IT, in government, in healthcare. Um, it's a question really of training those folks in those new occupations that are going to be, going to be existing. Yes, and and retrain. So we are right. going to we're uh, the our education systems, post secondary education systems, are in California. Our public education systems and our great private universities are fantastic at training people for the occupations of the future. Sometimes they move a little slower than the world moves, but we've got an enormous capacity there, including our community college system in particular for adult learning. But we're gonna have to substantially up our game in that field in particular to make sure that we're preparing people. Yeah, one of the other things we talk about an opportunity gaps is, is I think about the, the impact that the pandemic has had on on women and generally in childcare in particular. You know, a lot of women are staying at home, t- taking care of their kids, educating their kids you know, when they're dealing with distance learning. Do you think addressing issues like like childcare are part of the answer to closing the economic divide? I think there's no question that having a a very serious and it's not just a state issue. This is a national issue around the care economy and how do we ensure that we don't use our women as our social safety net. Many other countries in the world, particularly in Western Europe, have a much richer and broader safety net so that they have uh, longer periods of paid family leave. They are much more generous in caring for uh, both young children and for uh, aging adults. Um, The United States does not do that very well. And that's why the brunt of this recession, as some people calling it a she session, has been on women who not only have to try and earn a living, but at the same time, in in many cases, care for younger or elder ones. And doing that all at home is just mind-numbingly difficult. Yeah. So even if you have the skills, if you don't have the opportunity because you're taking care of uh, family members, then it doesn't really matter, does it? Um, Or, Or you're not getting compensated for it. So, you know, you don't get paid to take care of your kids or your elders at home. Right, right. Um, good point. Uh, but when we come back, uh, what do we do to build a more inclusive economy that works for everyone in a post-pandemic world? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Uh, we're talking with Lenny Mendoza, a leading authority on the California economy and key chief advisor uh, of Governor Newsom. You know, one aspect of the post-pandemic economy um, is this kind of shift to a, to a gig economy, one based on on-demand delivery uh, of services performed by workers who with the passage of Prop 22, are now designated as kind of a kind of a quasi, I guess, independent contractor. Uh, they generally earn less uh, and have fewer benefits than regular employees. And I'm just wondering, is that going to exacerbate the economic divide? I mean, how do you square that circle? So again, like uh, the issue of remote work, this was something that was happening already and was well underway. And the issue around classification, as you all know, has been an important economic and political issue in the United States and in other places in the world. Uh, the the uh, pandemic accelerated that, particularly in uh, issues of food delivery and other remote service delivery that requires in-person uh, last mile work. And the issue around how do you classify people who do that work, whether they are as the California Supreme Court and uh, the state legislature in AB5 said your employees, and then uh, Prop 22 for deliver for uh, drivers said that no, they were in a different class where there were more benefits than employ than uh, independent contractors, but less than employees. Um, I think that it, this issue is going to be a live issue over the next several years. It's as I said, a an international issue, but California and 
the United States labor laws are not aligned with where work is going. And so there may be a third class that has to come through in a more formal designation in, in um, Washington, D.C. Just this week, the U.K. ruled, uh, as the uh, California Supreme Court did, that uh, Uber drivers are employees, not independent contractors. Yeah, yeah, so it seems it's an it ongoing seems, conversation. In addition to that, I mean, you're going to see, I think you're right, this kind of the last mile delivery services are going to increase. See what automated uh, cars have to do there. But certainly they're talking about automated trucks for long haul truckers. People are expecting to see, you know, a lot of those folks replaced. And for, and for a lot of states, and California included, that's a lot of jobs. Um, what's going to happen to those people? So, um, again, this isn't going to happen overnight. And it may be long haul first, and it most likely will be. Um, and there'll be regulations that determine how that happens. Um, for safety reasons, if nothing else. And there will be time that will be really important, like many other segments of the economy where workers are being automated or or uh, changing their jobs that they either have to be reskilled, retrained, or find a different occupation. And that is a big category of workers. Um, but again, if that happens over a decade, um, particularly now at this point in time, we're short of truck drivers. So it's something that um, isn't going to happen overnight. It will be a really important issue for folks like the Teamsters Union. And it will be an important issue to make sure that we we don't just say, well, that's that's their problem. We have to be really thoughtful about people who lose their jobs and and how do we uh, ensure that they have opportunities. And you, you may see groups like the Teamsters Union try to organize these these gig gig drivers too. They might reach some kind of ind industry settlement, you know, what they call sector bargaining. Right. Um, you know, I want to ask you about that in terms of what can the federal government do or state government do in terms of policies to help these uh, lower income workers uh, to make it a more inclusive economy, make an economy that works for them. You could, I suppose, you could increase the minimum wage. You could expand the earned income tax credit, um, increase training. What kinds of things do the government should do to help? help them? All, all of the above. Um, we need to ensure that there is not uh, regulatory arbitrage through misclassification of workers. We need to ensure that there is a robust safety net when people are unemployed or partially employed or have something happen to them if they're sick or have to care for someone. We need to, as we mentioned earlier, have a care economy that works so that there are not burdens disproportionately placed on those who have to care for uh, un uncompensated work at or for young people or elderly people. We have to have a robust K to 12 and pre-K system, adult learning. And then I am a big fan of an expanded and enhanced earned income tax credit. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's interesting conversations and California has been leading the way on these of, of what's the definition of work for which EITC should be available. So and what, I, what I've seen in terms of research is it may be more impactful than increasing the minimum wage. Uh, yeah. expanding the earned income tax credit. I mean, you kind of have to have a little bit of both, but on the margin, if you told me to choose one, I'd choose EITC. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, when we come back, we're going to talk about some new opportunities for both businesses and workers in a post-pandemic economy. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Lenny Mendoza, a key advisor to Governor Newsom on business and economic issues about what a post-pandemic economy might look like and how COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic could create an opportunity to build a more competitive and inclusive California economy. You know, uh, Lenny, it seems like uh, virtually everything went, went virtual uh, during the pandemic, you know, from work to education to healthcare. 
what does that mean for economic development, uh, for particularly for places like the San Joaquin Valley that can offer affordable housing and maybe a higher quality of life? You know, I think uh, there is still a fair amount of <clears throat> uncertainty exactly how will uh, remote work evolve when the pandemic is under control and people have the option of going back to work. But most observers and many of the leading companies that have been at the forefront of remote work believe that this is a permanent shift, not that we'll have 100% of the people who are working remote now working remote 100% of the time, but that as likely three quarters or more of the people who are working remotely can do that on a reasonably continuous basis for three or four or sometimes even five days a week. So we're going to see a substantial increase in the number of jobs and tasks that are available to be deployed remotely two to three times at least probably where we were before the pandemic. Um, that creates very interesting questions about geography of jobs. So if you have the opportunity to have access to high paying jobs that are available in uh, Silicon Valley and San Francisco, but you can live in Fresno and have a much more affordable and uh, lifestyle, I think that's a very, very interesting opportunity. But, but and, the key there is going to be right. They're going to have to have good. They're going to close the digital divide. They, they can't have that gap that exists in a lot of rural communities in the valley. That's got to be addressed. Um, you know, Chattanooga, Tennessee did a really interesting uh, project to make sure that they were really wired and as a result attracted businesses there. So I would think given the digital economy, this is going to be really important for the region. No question. Um, right as we were heading into the uh, first wave of, of uh, closures with the uh, pandemic, we were announcing the California for all broadband plan. And, and in a talk that I was giving with Sonny McPeak, we were just talking about how uh, if you ever needed an urgency to why this needed to happen, both for economic reasons, but for public safety, health, Etc. We absolutely have to have universal high-speed broadband everywhere as fast as possible, um, and that's you know if the the coin of the realm before was you had to have physical access through uh, physical infrastructure, roads and and rail, etc. The coin of the realm going forward is you have to have digital connectivity. The the other thing I would argue too is you also have to have communities that are attractive, right? It can't just be a cookie cutter housing development. You've got to offer the kinds of amenities that, frankly, folks from the coast are used to, right? Or, or something something special that attracts them. Because now with with telecommuting, you could live in Boise, you could live anywhere. I have a I actually have a niece who's telecommuting with a data analytics company in New York City that she works for from San Diego. Um, that's the new world. Yeah. I mean, people are going to be competing for talent based on the quality of where they, they can live and want to live. And that's both a quality of life question. And so uh, the, all of the amenities that you just described, California has a huge advantage called weather, which everyone notices this time of year. But it's also important that uh, it's an economic proposition. So uh, it's you know going to be really challenging for the city of San Francisco when their median house price is three times Sacramento and four times Fresno. That's just not sustainable. Well, I'm wondering though, are you going to see? You think we're going to see a, a kind of a explosion of entrepreneurial activity um, as a result of the pandemic coming you out? Know, of it? I think it's already happening. That is part of what uh, has been historically the case in downturns. People uh, both see new opportunities. And this is even more pronounced because it's dramatically changing the way we work. But it's also that uh, many people decide that their best opportunity is to be an entrepreneur. 
And it is important that we are uh, cognizant of that and supporting them going forward. The number of particularly Main Street businesses that have been challenged and had to close because of the pandemic um, is is extremely pronounced. And I'm, I'm more concerned about the renewal of those businesses than I am about businesses that have access to venture capital. You know, you make a really good point. In fact, the Little Hoover Commission recently came out with a report on small businesses and they were talking about the community development financial institutions and yes. specifically the California Rebuilding Fund. And that really helps minority owned small businesses. And they were recommending that you give them a billion dollars, see if they can use this successfully. And if so, make that an annual appropriation. Seems to make a sense. I mean, a business person like you thinking probably ROI, return on investment. Uh, but I'm wondering from a political standpoint, because of the hesitancy of making these ongoing allocations, because they're worried about the budget, is that possible to have that well, ongoing allocation? So I, I uh, testified to that little Hoover Commission. I thought the report was very good. And I do think the California Rebuilding Fund is a perfect example of what we should do in times like this. We have a surplus at one time at least, use some of that money for things that can demonstrate and, and experiment with some new opportunities. And if it works, extend it. Extend it with more funding, although some of it could be a self-replenishing if they're loans that are getting repaid. And also that's something that is increasingly in conversations with the Biden administration is something that the federal government should pick up. The California head of small business advocate, uh, Isabel Guzman is going to be the head of SBA in Washington, D.C., and I wouldn't well, be surprised to see some of that. Well, let's see if that happens. Unfortunately, we're running up against a hard deadline. We could talk forever. I want to thank Lenny Mendoza for being our guest. If you want to stay current with state and local politics, you can log on to our website at maddieinstitute.org. This is Mark Kepler for The Matter Report. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed in The Matter Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or The Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed on the Matty Report, visit our website at mattyinstitute.org. The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.